Welcome to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in relationships, we grow in discipleship, and grow in Jesus Christ. This series will be looking at the Shema passage that was repeated daily for the Jews in Deuteronomy 6, 4-10. We hope that you subscribe so that you can grow in your worship and obedience of God through our Lord Jesus Christ. I would say he was right. Christianity without Christ. Our era has given rise to contradictions like progressive Christianity. Or believe it or not, Christian atheism is a thing. Or gay Christianity. There's no such thing as any of these. We need to relearn what it means to be a people who belong to God. So this is why we have things. As a church, we've spent time in our covenant and we have the covenant hanging on the wall back there. We use things like that or we use things like the statement on social justice and the gospel. And we're going to continue to just find ways to bring clarity, to clarify to ourselves, to one another, and to the world who it is that we are in our doctrine and in our practice according to Scripture. And so as we're beginning in Deuteronomy 6, we're really doing more of the same thing. We come to a passage that's been long cherished among the people of God, and we're going to address the ways that this passage was misunderstood by the Jewish people. But we can have great thanks in the high place that they gave this passage. Here in Deuteronomy 6, namely verses 4 through 10, has been uh, known as the Shema passage. It's a passage that Jews would have recited daily in their devotions to the Lord. This is what helped to to keep their memory fresh and help them to understand who it is they are and what it is they believe. And so the Shema passage is what we're going to study, but we're going to take it piece by piece and walk through it slowly to understand what it is that's being communicated to us through God's Word. So what is it that makes a passage so important? All the Scriptures God breathes, What is it that makes this passage so important to be repeated every day? And for that, I think we need to understand the whole context of Deuteronomy. Whenever we read this book, anytime you're reading, and I don't know if you've got a Bible reading plan that brings you through cover to cover or something like that, but Deuteronomy literally means the second giving of the law. Israel had just been redeemed out of the land of Egypt. Uh, They'd been wandering in the wilderness and they they had actually suffered a lot of uh, waywardness. They've turned their face from God. They had even made idols for themselves, we remember, in the wilderness. We come to find as they're fixing to enter into the promised land, they even failed to circumcise their sons under the Abrahamic covenant, even which, which sort of identified them as a people of God. 
And so there's some preparation that needs to take place as they've wandered around and God has guided them in that way and he's given him his law. And he says to Joshua, Moses was prevented from entering in. He says to Joshua, look, you need to read, reiterate the law of God to my people. They've got to hear this again. He would go on and, 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 and bring them to a point of recommittal, having this, the, the, all the males, not just the sons now, because now they're adults, all the males circumcised before entering in. They would, they would uh, recommit to his law. And so all of this, he's getting this recommittal before they enter in. And the reason is, is because this grand contingency in receiving the promised land Getting the promises and the good things, the rewards from God is the lordship of God. Is that God would be their God and he, they, his people. You don't get the promised land without God. And so, this is where the Shema passage starts in Deuteronomy 6. And so we're actually going to start in verse 1 just to give us a little bit of a feel for uh, how Joshua presents this from the Lord. And as we read this, I want you all to receive this yourselves. I mean, we're not, we're not the old Israel going into the promised land, but we certainly are the new Israel who's looking forward to the promises of Christ being fulfilled. Let this serve to you as a reminder of these things and let it push you to greater faithfulness, maybe call you to repentance as we go through some of these things, it's not a simple history lesson. So I invite you to stand as we read from God's Word together. Again, Deuteronomy 6. I'm going to begin reading in, in verse 1 there. And by the time we get to verse 4, that's where our Shema passage begins and where we'll begin our study. Now these are the commandments and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord God commanded you. He just sort of already gave some of the commands from Exodus in chapter 5. So these are what God commanded to teach you that ye might do them in the land where ye go to possess it. That thou mightest fear the Lord thy God to keep all his statutes and his commandments which I command thee, thou and thy son and thy son's son all the days of thy life that thy days may be prolonged. Hear therefore, O Israel, and observe and do it, that it may be well with thee, and that ye may increase mightily, as the Lord God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning as our God. The one who has fulfilled all these promises. The one who is faithful to redeem his people. The one who keeps covenant with his people to a thousand generations. Lord, as we gather today in your name, we pray that we are gathering in your midst as well. God, that even as we approach this text, as we seek out the, full, the very fullest fulfillment 
of all that you have promised in Jesus Christ. Let us say with Israel on their point of repentance, we will not go apart from the presence of our God. So Lord, meet with us today. Work in your fullness in our midst. Lord, for some, bring us to repentance. Lord, that we would reacquaint ourselves with your law and that we would come to you in your mercy. Lord, for others, that we would be strengthened and emboldened and made ready and happy to receive the reward that you've promised us. God, that you would be with me, who too is corrupt and who too needs this word to be preached, even as Joshua did. Father, that together we would submit and truly become the likeness of Christ who makes us your people. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. come to this I mean really picture yourself as Israel you've wandered for 40 years the ones entering in we remember because they, they went in and they didn't have faith and they were turned out again to the wilderness the ones who were left here that are hearing this are only hearing the stories they're looking back and, and they're those children that said hey why are these you know, stones, well, we're not there yet, but why Why are we doing this Passover thing? Every year, why do we have to eat this? You know, staff in our hands, sandals on our feet, and they're hearing the stories of the redemption that God provided in Egypt. They're coming into a long-awaited inheritance in the land of Canaan. I mean, this is a pretty climactic event for the people of Israel. And yet they remember as well all the sins of their forefathers. The idols that they stored up in the past and the sins that they committed in the past. And they come to God's Word and this proclamation God gives Joshua is Hear, O Israel, listen up. You know, this by itself, before we just jump into all this doctrine and theology proper about who God is, don't forget this call of God. It ought to remind us of not just the initial call of God, but the sustaining call of God. Indeed, every one of us here, if you call yourself a Christian, you've experienced that call of God. Every one of us, we've got this general call of the gospel that we call everyone to, and then we've got this effectual call whenever, man, it clicks and God calls us to Himself. But that's not it. God calls again and again. He bears witness to us in His Word, and He comes to us whenever we're in sin or we're in need of repentance or we're needing of greater faithfulness. He comes again because, you know, whenever we look at even back at Adam and Eve, 
God called them into being, breathing the breath of life, but even when they sinned, God came into the garden, and when they hid themselves, God called Adam. Where art thou? The call of God is everlasting, and it, has, it sustains us. It has a sustaining work. It's the same in the people of Israel. God did not simply call Abraham or Abram out of the land of his father and say, you're going to a new land. Uh, this is it. This wasn't the only call of God. We know He called all the leaders. He called Moses out. We've dealt with that calling of the Lord in the past when we went through Exodus on this matter. And here He calls to His people again. Hear, O Israel. Hear me again. Hear my law again. See again, hear again of the stories of redemption. I'm that God who has offered you this redemption out of the land of Egypt. I am the God of your fathers who called out your father Abraham when you weren't even a people. Hear me again. And so we don't need to forget this. When they've gone astray, when we were yet enemies, He sent His Son. And so let us not forget the faithfulness of God in the heralding of God's Word to His people. I truly believe God has appointed this day and every Sunday, every Lord's Day, as that day whenever God calls again to His people, hear, O church, the new Israel that's coming into the new city of Jerusalem, listen up and hear His Word preached to you. Be made alive. Come again to His law. Have it written on your hearts. And so we don't overlook that. And to His people, He reminds them not stomping them down under a law. We often view the law as some form or source of oppression. But the first thing God says to Joshua is, listen up Israel, the Lord our God is God. The Lord our God. The Lord is God. But he's not merely a God. He's not someone else's God. He's our God. We're not studying a simple history book. We're not studying a foreign culture. We're, we're coming to the God of the Bible that is our God. If you're a Christian, you're one of his people. You belong to Him and He belongs to you in the sense that God's the only one to receive our worship. He is it. He's our God. He belongs to us. He is ours. When we go, we take Him with us. Where He goes, we follow. We, we are one with Him. He belongs to us in that sense. As Calvin puts it, all other deities are brought to naught. The people are commended to fly and detest whatever withdraws their minds from the pure knowledge of Him. God will share His glory with no other. He will only accept the worship that's for Him 
alone. He is our God, no one else, no other thing, only God, the only living God. He's it. He does not accept worship from a people that's divided. Our worship cannot be divided. In the following chapters of Deuteronomy, I think that, that we get a bit of an explanation. When we break the Shema down and we, if we were to say, I think we can break this down into the two great commandments, really. You know, loving the Lord thy God and then loving the people. We've got, we've got this belief in God and then this matters of obedience. And I think the following couple chapters dive in and explain some of this as they prescribe for us that correct worship and that diligent obedience. In chapter 7 is where we get a breakdown. We see why it is that our worship must be of God and God alone. Right before what I'm fixing to read, God had given the people a prescription. Remember, they're fixing to enter into the promised land. That was dwelt by, it was the land of Canaan, and it was dwelt by all the pagan people worshiping Baal. We could go into all of the false and grotesque worship that happened there um, with the crops and the rain and the need for water and the sexualization of, of all their blessing and, uh, and everything else. But God gives the command, you're going to drive them out. Now, everywhere in before then, on the way to this promised land, we hear sometimes, hey, you're going to take all the spoils of the land. You're, all, all of these are yours. Any, we, we even have prescriptions sometime of the sojourner in the land, but not now. When they come into the promised land, we have God saying, you're going to cleanse the land. You're going to rid it of everything. Every person, every cow, every, everything is going to be done away with. You're not going to intermarry with this people. There, are, there is no such thing as a soldier in a land. They are driven completely out. Nothing will be left for the land is being given to you. Now you might say, but pastor, isn't, isn't that kind of harsh? Why would God say that? Well, for one, doesn't that sound a little bit familiar? Did God really say when we come to these matters of justice, matters of cleansing the land, I'm going to tell you what God did say. Yes. Here's why. Look to Deuteronomy 7, verse 6 through 9. God says why. You're going to cleanse all, all of this. We're not going to have any of these blasphemous pagans. You're not going to marry them or take their gods Here's why. For thou art a holy people unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love upon you nor choose you because you were more in number than any people. For you were fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn to your fathers hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. This is why. 
were not loved by God in a nonchalant way. We're not part of some sort of spiritual polygamy where God loves us with a mediocre love that He loves every other person on the face of the planet. We're loved by God. We are a special people. He sent His Son to die for us. He died in our place. The bride, the body of Christ. We're something different. We cannot say that He loves everyone the way that He loves His church. We are a special people. Something set apart unto God. His bride, the bride of Christ. The world is filled with people who want to feel special. They go to extreme and even grotesque lengths to seem to set themselves apart. But have you heard if everyone's special, no one is special? This is kind of the problem with giving every kid a trophy. Right? No, there is a special people of God. It is in the care of our God that we're made special. You know, before I move on, there's another passage as I walk a little bit further in chapter 7. God is our God. He's the faithful God which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love Him and keep His commandments to a thousand generations. Think about that. It is not that God so loves this people that He's going to love all their children and, and, and inheritance after them, but that He loves the people of God so that so long as the people of God love God and keep His commandments to a thousand generations, guys, we're quite a ways after that whenever this was written, weren't we? Some 4,000 years, I would guess. And He still keeps covenant and mercy with us today. He so loves His people thousand generations that whenever you raise your children you can trust God is going to be there you don't have to trust that he has so loved you that he's going to do something on your behalf oh no God's love's greater than you my friend God will be there for your sons and your son's sons and the next generation to follow for a thousand generations God is good on his covenant and on his word and on his mercy That ought to be encouraging to us. In our world, in our children's day, when it's our children filling the pulpits, that is good news. He continues in verse 17 there in, I'm sorry, verse 13 there in chapter 7 of Deuteronomy, we're told he'll love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. The next verse, thou shalt be blessed above all people. We're blessed more than everyone else. We have something they do not have. 
We could go to Jeremiah, but this, listen to this. We're talking about the God who keeps covenant and steadfast love here. But this shall be the covenant I will make with the house of Israel, says Jeremiah 31, 33. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. He is our God. It is the church that has seen this word fulfilled. Indeed, they went into the promised land. Indeed, they experienced mighty things. But guys, the state of Israel has been up and down, in and out, and we know the history on that. The church is the one who has seen this fulfilled with its greater fervency. It is us who can say, God has been true. He has kept his covenant, and we have seen it fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who has issued it to us in the blood of the new covenant. We've seen all of this. He's written this law in our hearts. We love His law and He has fulfilled it in Christ Jesus. There is no people blessed by God like the church of Jesus Christ and He sets His wrath upon all who oppose Him. But upon us, He has set His love and mercy and has covenanted with us and no one else. He is our God. It is in Jesus Christ that we see this covenant. The Lord our God is one Lord. One Lord, one God. You would think this is a give me, but it's not. It fills entire shelves in my library. It fills entire semesters in seminary courses if taught rightly. We've already stressed there's one God in essence. He's the only one that is our Lord. We remember that the, the statue of Dagon when the Ark of the Covenant left the people of Israel and it was put in the temple of Dagon and they found the statue of Dagon turned over and even broken at the foot of the Ark of the Lord. There's only one Lord. Um... That's in 1 Samuel 5 if you want to make note of that and study that later. We could spend a great deal of time talking about competing idols. Uh, he's one Lord. Um, surely there's some of us here who probably have dealt with uh, a level of idols. Money, career, status, uh, drugs maybe, sex, pornography, certain relationships, even good ones that we have brought to that essential level, you know, loving, looking, worshiping our children more than God or something. Um, ideas, like some of these Marxist ideologies, critical theory, intersectionality, um, feminism, all these sorts of things have probably competed for your worship. But the reality is that the person who's got these competitors for your worship is not a Christian. If you're competing, if there's something competing for your, your worship of God, you're not of this people of God. You're not there yet. We love you. We want to draw you in. We want to show you that this is the one true God who has sent redemption to His people who has been faithful to His promises. But you've got to get here. He's got to be your God then we, because we want to talk to Christians for a minute. 
Okay, I'm not talking about people who's divided and wants to worship something else. To the people who says, this is my God. And you want to worship Him rightly. My goal is to speak to build you up to full maturity in the faith. And let me ask you, how does the oneness of the Lordship of God play out in our worship of Christ? Do we, like Abraham did, maybe you remember the story where Abraham saw the three divines from afar, and when he came upon them, he spoke to and worshiped only one. When we read of the baptism of Christ and we see the Spirit descend a light on Him like a dove and hear the voice from above from the Father, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. Do we recognize as Christ taught that He and the Father are one? Remember 1 Corinthians 8.6 to us, there's but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in Him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by Him. Did you, did you catch that? The Father, of whom are all things. Jesus, by whom or through whom are all things. The Father, and we in Him, and Christ, and we by Him. Now there certainly are More than one person. There are three persons. But there's only one God. We still say as Christians, when we read the scriptures and we understand Father, Son, Holy Spirit, it is one God that we worship. This is represented, I think, in something I heard just this week by Vody Bacham. He was addressing some of this homosexuality and things like this as people were saying, uh, combating that. And they would do so by the argument, Jesus didn't say anything against homosexuality. He never personally taught against homosexuality. And the way that Vody Bauckham responded to this, at least in the audience there, he said, when the fire and the brimstone fell upon Sodom, Christ was present. Jesus is part of the Godhead, and every word of Scripture comes through Him. He is the Word who was in the beginning with God and was God, through whom all things were made. He's the Word incarnate that was made flesh, John 1.14. And it's true, many religions fail to see the three persons in the Godhead. They would agree with you there's one God. Jews would agree there's one God, or they're Orthodox Jews. Muslims would agree with you there's one God. This is a huge hang-up for them. They don't see the, the Trinity they don't understand that. But when we read Scripture, we see the Trinity. 
There's far too many Christians that fail to worship God in His triunity. That's a $3 word for today. We worship one God, but oftentimes we have separated Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and we fail to see how all of this works together and fail to worship Him in His triunity. When we witness the sovereign acts of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit are there and instruments for Him. When we behold the deity of Christ, the Father and the Spirit are with Him. Whenever the Spirit moves in our midst, it's not independent of the Father and the Son. He is not, He is but one God. And He acts by way of three persons with distinct roles. But instead of asking, I've said before, instead of asking what does the, the Father do and the Son do and the Spirit do, ask in each event what the Father, Son, and Spirit do. They don't act separately. It is one God. Don't let anyone convince you to separate or divorce our God from Himself in any action, creation, redemption, or otherwise. So this is important for us. We need to understand this oneness of God, of our one God in three persons, because what does the Scripture say of us? There is one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. We better grasp the oneness of God. If God is not one, the only one, our Lord and only Lord, then we're not one. And we're not made one in Christ and hidden with Christ in God, as Colossians 3, 1-3 says. There's a oneness of God, a oneness of our mediator, and a oneness that we are called into, a oneness that we operate in as the church, that the Lord our God is one Lord affects everything in life and godliness. And so... Brothers and sisters, as we study this, we do well to remind ourselves of this oneness of God daily, really of the whole Shema. We'll look more at the effects of our worship and our obedience in our families and our vocation in the coming weeks. But as we reflect on these truths, I want to challenge you Try reciting this daily. Give yourselves, I, I don't remember exactly how many weeks, maybe seven or so, that we'll be going through this Shema passage. Try reciting it. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Through verse 10, recite this passage. He is one Lord. Love. The Lord thy God with all thine heart, soul, and all thy might. These words which I command thee this day shall be on thy heart. Teach these things diligently to your children. Just, just recite this every day for a couple of months and meditate upon these doctrines. 
that God had impressed upon his people before receiving his promises. Pair this. Pair this with our study on Sunday nights that begins next week, the theology for the family, as we understand what does it mean? How do you teach these things diligently to your family? As you sit in your house and walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise up, how do you do that? How important is that? Are we actually doing that faithfully as the people of God? And even where you struggle to understand our triune God, strive to worship Him in His Trinity. Keep it in mind as you pray, when you seek to see the role of the three persons in your study or in your life, not confusing one for the other, but seeing the way God revealed Himself in Scripture. That you are worshiping a God, a Father, who sovereignly ordained and willed for something to occur, a Son who lived and achieved righteousness on our behalf a spirit who raised him from the dead and lives in you still just try to worship all that God is there's one man I think it was Bruce Ware who said who defined worship bowing all that we are before all that God is let's pray Heavenly Father, we come to you for all that you are. You are not simply a God who is on high, away or apart from us. You are not simply a, a, a man who lived or, 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 or a, a God who's performed something on our behalf. You're not simply a spirit or, or an armed or an acting agent uh, in, in our midst but you're all of them. You are a God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, who is high and lifted up and who fills all things, who is in all things and through all things and for whom all things are made, by whom all things are made. And yet you enter in and you come in our midst. You're subjected to futility. You act on our behalf. Lord, and you, with Christ, are raised and send this same Spirit in us and who intercedes for us and who, who unites us to the church and to Christ who is one with God. Father, we pray that you would grant us repentance from passing over your character so quickly. Father, we pray that you would draw us to meditation on who you are and what it is that you have done. Indeed, we are baptized in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. God, we want to know you for all that you are. We look forward to you conforming us to the image of your Son that we might share 
in something far too great and being invited in to the fellowship that you have amid yourself. A calling far too great. And Lord, we give you all the glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to New Life Baptist Preaching, where we grow in discipleship, grow in relationships, and grow in Jesus Christ. Subscribe so you don't miss a single Sunday.